depressing. Even the happy songs are sad. We need to write some of the old stuff again, fellas. That's the all I'm saying. The old stuff is old. So we'll make it new again. I can't go back in time. We're not surfers. We never have been. And real surfers don't dig our music anyway. They don't. Okay, I can't write about the summer and fun and summer and summer and fun and cars. I got different stuff inside me. I gotta get it out. Welcome to Musicians Movie Club. I am Dan. My name's Tommy. And I'm J-Dog with the... <laughs> Big dump in the penis bump. Yeah. We can restart if you want. <laughs> no, 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 no. You put that on record. That's that's there forever. Clean take. Josh. <laughs> Josh Kane, you're in like three bands. Tell us about them. Um, I like them. And the first one, we'll go in chronological order. Uh, pretty pleased from back from 2016 i think um that's my baby um and i have been hired to play in okay cool uh i'm strictly an employee there is no joy that sounds that sounds awful i wish you could understand i i don't i don't want to hmm, maybe one day young man um and then pulitzer priceless uh is the latest and greatest just released the first song on Spotify. Good song. It's a good song. It's a good song. I'll say that into the microphone. It's uh, how how you say headbang ish, and headbang ish, headbang ish. Cool. Uh, having capabilities of hanging bed, <laughs> <laughs> banging heads. I will end my turn. Great. <laughs> and. Uh... And Josh, you're here to share um, a film with us. Can you tell us about that film, your connection with it, what, what it means to you, your, your uh, life story? So we are discussing Love and Mercy. That's Love, Ampersand, Mercy. And I saw it in theaters when it came out with, I believe, just my parents. I don't know if my sister came, but um, I assume my dad knew about Beach Boys because he likes music and also my mom likes music now that I talk about it. So I, she must know about it's it. Two, two for two. Two for two. Both parents, they know music. And I hadn't heard of the, the movie before going in. Um, and then it just quickly became an all-time favorite. Um, I don't buy a lot of media, but this one I bought the Blu-ray. I think full price. Back when Best Buy sold physical which media. Which they're not going to do next year. Not going to do it. We should talk about that. We're not yeah. going to, though. Oh. I do have a couple I have a couple follow-up questions about your um, Love and Mercy and Beach Boys experience. First one, was this like instant favorite movie, or did it take a couple watches? What was, what was the like immediate reaction? I don't remember, okay. other than really liking it, coming out of the theater. Okay. Um... I think as my musical uh, hobbies or interests uh, uh, greatened over the years, I started to uh, connect with the movie a little bit more with like mental health. Um, I mean, medication is not like super talked about in the movie, but it's like one it's of the main, piece of it, yeah. yeah, main driving points of conflict. Um, 
and just how the two are in fact very related music and mental health and um i was like yeah this is this is a good representation of that and it's beautiful yeah and then were you already like a beach boys fan or has this made you more of a beach boys fan i'm curious about your history with like the band too um this made me a little bit more of a beach boys fan um i listen to pet sounds uh whenever i watch the movie um and then don't touch it until the next time um (laughs) but just because i it's it's fresh on the mind obviously but um I think I I connect more with the story than the actual Beach Boys music. Um I connect with the process of making of Brian Wilson making the music. Um but yeah, I I mean I I always thought the Beach Boys were like sun and surfing and girls maybe, I don't know. I think they talk about boys too. So yeah, this was uh, eye opening for Beach Boys history. Yeah, what a what an interesting. I like got sucked into a vortex of Beach Boys stuff today specifically because I I mean I really liked Pet Sounds and my brother really put me onto the Beach Boys when I was a little younger um, and specifically like this kind of like branch of of their story um, and like the smile kind of like mythology um, and he's like you got to hear this song Vegetables um, it's crazy. Um, and then, yeah, this came around. I remember it coming out and was really excited for it, but I didn't see it until um, like 2020. Um, and I kind of forgot about it, but it was a, it was a delight to rewatch. And it's a, fan, it's a fantastic film. You saying vegetables um, makes me want to cut directly into the middle of the movie when we just see uh, in the recording studio the all the, all the tapes of, uh, I think that they were like, yeah. What do you call them? The Those f- like analog The tapes. analog tapes. Yeah. Um, and they all had labels on the spine, and there was like hundreds of them. Um, and there was a close-up, or pretty close-up shot of just panning through the labels, and I was like, ha there's one called vegetables. <laughs> and then the, it kept panning, and they're like, hey, there are two more. And then it kept going, and there was like five more at that point. Um, so that was the first song I listened to when I pulled up smile. (laughs) I was listening to smile as well this past week. And I remember looking at the credits on Wikipedia and it was like vegetable chomping next to like every beach boys name for the credits (laughs) on the album. I thought that was fantastic. Every band needs a vegetable chomper. Every band needs a vegetable chomper who in each of your three bands, who are the vegetable chompers at the top of your head? Go. Well, I'm a vegetarian. So So you by default for all of them. Yes. Yes. That was an easy answer then. (laughs) (laughs) Glad I came up with that on the spot. (laughs) I think something that's particularly remarkable about this movie is the fact that you see music composition and engineering in like such thorough detail. Like not a lot of movies, if any, really have like seeing a musician come up with an idea for a song and like kind of like building it out. And I think the stuff in the studio doing pet sounds is so much fun to watch because you're, you're like, he's being, he's playful and he's like having a great time. So that's good. (laughs) Um, But he's also like, um, it it adds this whole dimension to an album, which at least for me was um, something I felt very familiar with. And then like, I didn't realize that like, you know, putting the, the pins on the, on the piano strings and, um, and the ideas of like them playing, um, 
different uh, bass lines and different keys mm-hmm. and like all that kind of like uh, minutia that kind of definitely gives you like a new appreciation for, for that music. Yeah. It just gives me an appreciation for like quote unquote back in the day when they actually recorded thing, things in studios. I just kept thinking the whole time during those scenes like, oh, I do this in my bedroom and don't have access to like, like he makes a reference to playing the studio itself as like another instrument. That's just something like so lost on me that I'd never considered. And I was like, holy shit, that is the coolest thing I've ever heard in my life. Mm-hmm. Brian Wilson, you're on to something. <laughs> you're gifted, kid. You're gifted, kid. As, as um, Hal. The, yeah, Hal, whatever. Hal? Uh, I have a note about Hal it Jar- somewhere. Al Jardine. No, that's one of the Beach Boys. It was one of the session musicians who was like, "You got something special, kid." So great point you've I've accidentally made. Um, I a gripe I have with the, a qualm I have with the movie is the exposition of specifically the the band members. Um, anyone but the main characters, like I had no idea who they were. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that maybe their names were spoken once. Um, but like the rest of the Beach Boys all had the same mop top haircut and yeah. I didn't know who was who. Thoughts yeah. on that? There, there's like one scene where it's like, oh, sorry, I'm talking in the wrong part of the microphone. Um, I am an audio engineer at heart. <laughs> there's like the scene at the beginning where they're in the press conference when it's doing like the sort of good old days montage and they kind of really quickly go, Brian, other people's Dennis, names. I'm Carl. Dennis, yeah. Carl, thank you. <laughs> Beach Boys. I'm a big fan, as you can tell. I actually don't know a lot about the Beach Boys. I will say that's up front. Me neither. Yeah. And I like was doing some research, but I was, I don't know. I, I just like learned I'm not like a Beach Boys guy. Mm-hmm. I'm a Beatles guy. And everything I know about the Beach Boys was like related back to their kind of competitiveness with the Beatles, which was referenced in the movie, which I thought was funny. Mm-hmm. They talk about Rubber Soul a good amount, which I thought was cool. And then Paul McCartney saying he likes um, God Only Knows, I think is the one that he said was yeah. like one of the greatest songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like that was neat, but that was like the only frame of reference I've ever had for the Beach Boys. And I'd seen this movie probably when it came out and just didn't remember much about it. So it was cool kind of getting a refresher course, not just in how good the movie is, but just like the Beach Boys as a band that exists that I forgot about. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice little reminder because I went back and listened to Pet Sounds and still not like fully my cup of tea, but I had a new appreciation for it. Just kind of understanding Brian Wilson a little better. Uh, where he was coming from with some of that competitiveness and then just wanting to try weird new things. Mm-hmm. Does he go over the top, a little too over the top sometimes? I think so, and that's just a personal aesthetic sort of, not movie-related note. There are a lot of pieces of the movie that are exaggerated or just completely f- not true, uh, but for the sake of the movie. Um, one of the main things, um, they show Melinda basically leaving a voicemail for Carl, getting the ball rolling for, you know, suing Dr. Landy for all of his garbage he did. Mm -hmm. Um, But it turns out that it was Brian's therapist who did that, who got the ball rolling in real life. Something on Wikipedia that I read today about that was that um, it was also partially because of... uh, Landy's like monthly salary going up to like thirty thousand dollars a month, which I guess in the eighties is like a hundred thousand dollars or something. Who was paying him? Um, I assume the Brian Wilson fund. The um, I was yeah, <laughs> I was in the. I don't think it's an estate until you die, but okay. I'm not a lawyer. Okay. Um, this is not a legal podcast. Do not take any <laughs> legal <laughs> advice. Uh, not yet. Yeah, I think you know and. 
to your point about the exposition and the other band members and stuff. So I had like a pretty basic understanding of it going in. And I, after like doing a lot of reading today, I kind of like was able to put it all in place of who is who. Um, because like there's also those there's those other guys that they hang out with who are like helping him write songs like not explained at all but like the uh it's like carl and dennis wilson his brothers and then um mike love and mike love is kind of a uh like a i think beach boys fans kind of you know mostly paint him as the the big villain of of their career um and uh but a lot of stuff i was reading today was kind of like yeah he wasn't actually that mad about it he was just you know, pushing back. He didn't understand it, whatever. And then there's Al Jardine, who, frankly, I don't know if he had a line in this movie. If he did, like, I was on, like, there's just another guy in the band because it mostly focused on the brothers and Mike Love. Um, and then, yeah, there was those other songwriters and stuff that were, like, floating around. There's a guy named, like, um, Dyke Van Park or something like that. Never um, even heard those words. Yeah, I know, right? But he's in that, like, he's in the movie. I just don't, I can't place him. He's the guy that was supposed to be helping Brian write smile. And I think there's that scene where they kind of like the beach boys kind of like break up kind of in the pool and, and Brian's kind of like floating around on a pool floaty. And it's that guy who's like on the edge of the pool. Yeah. Who's like, I've been writing songs forever or whatever. He looks, he looks 14 years old. And I was like, yeah. you have not been writing songs forever, dude. You're 14 years old. Towards the like beginning middle. I think like, so you would consider it first act. Uh, Tyson Ritter was one of his friends. I don't know which one that is. Uh, I'm not, I can't describe his appearance okay. too well other than like long hair. He's the singer of uh, All American Rejects. Oh. Oh, okay. It, I, okay. I did not clock that. So I was like really distracted by that. I don't know if <laughs> that scene, um, there was... Oh, okay. I know who you're talking about now. Yeah. I looked up a picture of him. He's just like, there's those two guys who are just like, yeah, Brian, man, you go... Go do your thing. Go the band like uh, at the dinner party. Uh, yeah. He was there. There's like, yeah, there's like a couple of those like yes men guys that are always yeah. hanging out with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then. Didn't get a name. No, probably not. No name. Um, he was all American uncredited. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, actually, he's credited and the other guy as hipster one and hipster two. Really? Yep. Nice. Uh, I read a lot of stuff about Brian Wilson's life um, between pet sounds and smile and then to the point where you know we kind of pick up with the john cusack um part john cusack chicago evanston native i um, saw him at a cubs game once he's yeah he's a fan um i his stunt double is like a regular at g-man he's wow. a guy he like kind of looks like john, he doesn't look like that, like <laughs> very much like him honestly um but uh it's, it's okay john cusack also doesn't look like brian wilson so that's true. Uh, I will say, I think Paul Dano does look like Paul Brian. Yes. That's a good yes. casting. Um, but John Cusack, great performance. We'll get to it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So the, he did a lot of like, they, so they like let the other Beach Boys just like take over the brand and they made a ton of albums where Brian just kind of floated in and out of contributing. And like some of them he kind of did a little bit more and some of them he like literally wasn't there. Um, which is really bizarre, but I guess he just like kind of further drifted into that, like, you know, drug addled, like depressive, you know, whatever psychotic break or whatever, you know, was going on with him. Mm -hmm. But, but they were active and making stuff like for basically all of the seventies too, which is, which was really surprising to me. Um, the movie kind of makes it feel like after pet, after smile, they, they, they broke up and then 
uh, then they right. they picks us up. Um, but I think that's all in the you know name of like having a really good story. For me, the uh, timeline of Beach Boys, like specifically Beach Boys stuff, is unclear to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the the timeline of like Brian Wilson stuff, including like making music and and then in the eighties time, that timeline's good. But like I, the, do you think that the 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 makers of the film and the the consultants didn't think that the Beach Boys specifically stuff was not like as important, but like wasn't worth mentioning? I don't know if it's that so much. It's not like a movie about the Beach Boys. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of where I came at it from because there are definitely yeah lots of holes and just confusing things. With I don't like I didn't leave it understanding more about the Beach Boys really. Understood it. I left understanding more about Brian Wilson. I think that was more the point. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is okay. I think that was a good choice. It would have been hard to kind of give too much context and have it feel like a history lesson. Like they do the little montage during the opening credits, and I think that's enough to just be like, this is a band that exists, but you probably already know about them enough to appreciate what's going on. I uh, really liked that opening credits montage. Yeah. I, yeah. I remember the first time I saw it feeling disoriented. The first like 10 minutes or so of the movie, the editing, I was just like, what is going on? Is the whole movie going to feel like this? Yeah. It's like him in the studio talking to himself and he's in bed and it's black and then it's the montage and it's back to the future. And I'm like, I don't understand where I'm supposed to be right now. And I got really worried the whole movie was going to be that sort of like weird expressionistic editing style. It, it, it like finds its pacing, but yeah, I find the beginning of this movie very disorienting, which is maybe the point, but I thought I was like, please don't all be like this. Yeah. That, that opening montage kicks ass. I was like, so into that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to see a whole documentary about the Beach Boys, like entire career. That was something actually that I walked away from, but I understood that it was a Brian Wilson movie about mm-hmm. Brian Wilson's like, you know, struggles and, and identity and vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought it was great pacing the whole time. Yes. Um, I wanted the, the portrayals of mental health, such as like, the way they they tried to portray his anxiety, like dinner, uh, the dinner table with all like about the silverware, silverware clinking and getting more and more. And like, that's a great thing or like a great portrayal. Mm-hmm. I think I was itching for it to be more subtle in a way that's not, uh, I don't know. That's just like a picky. I don't know. I get what you're saying in terms of it not being very subtle. And I think I had that thought at one point, specifically with the sound design during that dinner table scene. And kind of also when he's on the plane having the panic attack at the beginning, they do they do a similar thing. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I'm like, there's nothing subtle about a panic attack. So I think it kind of worked for me. Yeah. Uh, the score, uh, that was the first thing I wrote down, Atticus Ross. I was like, this is going to be good. Nice. And it always comes through. <laughs> no, but I, I had some notes about the score because I, I went back and forth on, not if I liked it, I liked the score. The score does this weird thing where parts of it sound very contemporary and how it kind of remixes different parts of Beach Boys songs. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes sense in the context of the 80s scenes, kind of like ghosts of the past, like just kind of like the haunting voices of the ooze from and harmonies of Beach Boys songs. Yeah. Makes sense to me. But it did sound very like when they did kind of add the score to the 60s scenes, it felt kind of anachronistic in a way where I was like, just play the Beach Boys songs. They're doing the Beach Boys songs. Like I was fine with that and thought it made sense. Because the score would come in for those parts, and I was like, it just sounds very modern for like what's taking place. I like the score. But I, sometimes yeah. in context, I was like, this sounds a little modern. But it made more sense to sound modern, I guess, in the 80s than 
when like the look of the film when they're in the 60s is completely different from the look of the film when they're in the 80s like aesthetically they do a good job separating the two but the score was kind mm-hmm. of consistent through both i i think the score stands out to me because he's doing the remixing of the 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 harmonies of the uh, the vocal harmonies and then what's stuck in my head at this moment is when uh, Brian Wilson's dad comes into the studio and he's like I just signed this band. Put put on this record. Yeah. This uh, this is what a gold record sounds like. Or he's like, Brian, come listen to what a gold record sounds like. And it's the song, sun, sun, sun. And then it's like a, like a really building rhythmic, like boom, 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 yeah. boom, boom. That's stuck in my head right now. Um, but like <laughs> the way it was mixed into the score and then kind of turned into like like a heartbeat while we're focused on Brian in the in the in the in the recording room, uh, separated from the music and the people, it it just like he tuned it out, is what yeah. I is what I got, and then he he came back to like internal thoughts and internal ideas. That reminds me of uh, an earlier scene where his dad comes into the studio and he's like, "It might have been the same scene because yeah, he's like, I signed this new band," um, and Brian Wilson goes, "That's great, Dad." That's good for you. You're doing your own thing. And I was like, well, obviously, like, that's a great response. Uh, but he's able to, like, not worry about the competition is what is the vibe I got from that. He's able to compartmentalize. Yeah, but it's, it's also like a band doing a completely different thing than he's trying to do at that point. Because I don't think, and the whole conflict between Mike and Brian kind of illustrates this. Brian's not out to make a gold record anyway at that point. He just wants to... I mean, beat, not beat the Beatles, but, you know, do something experimental and um, different and interesting. But I, I, it, it, it was cool how calm he was in response to mm-hmm. his dad just, like, being an asshole. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk about the dad's role in the movie a little bit because I thought... Let me find my note. I, I guess so... I wrote this note, like, half an hour into the movie, and I just was wondering about what his role was and whether it was necessary to have him be such like explicitly a character in the movie versus something more talked about. Cause like Brian's got so much shit going on and the dad's just such an over the top one dimensional, like asshole character. And I get that he might've actually been like that. And I understand like the parallels between him and then Dr. Landy later in the movie, but like it just felt kind of obvious in a way that I don't know. I feel like there's a way to maybe do it more subtly than just here's the dad being a jerk and then pushing it in your face, I guess. I don't really know how to phrase it well. The but... wrong kid died. <laughs> the Jeez. wrong kid died. Did, was that said? No, Dan, oh, Dan, Dan and I watched Walk Hard this week. Oh. Um, and there's a running bit where the dad keeps saying the wrong kid died. Jeez. Uh, but honestly, I kind of got that vibe a little bit where the dad's sure. just so... Like, I think it, they could have done without him because there's already, there's already the scene with him and uh, Melissa at the restaurant later where they're talking about like the dad beating him as a kid and stuff. I feel like I wrote something for that exact yeah, thing. Yeah, go for it. Uh, that stood out to me. He's like, um, my dad scared me as a kid, and he scared me into, or I think he scared me into making good records. Yeah, that line's wild. Mm-hmm. I think that does enough of the lifting that you don't have to like keep coming back to the dad in the past scenes. I guess is my point. Mm-hmm. Like that line alone, I was like, I get it. The scene with like the flashback of him hitting young, young, young Brian. Yeah. Um, th- that could have been the only thing we saw of the dad. Yeah, and I, I would have been like, "That's what you're saying." Yeah, got it. Um, That's a good point. 
I don't I don't actually have much of a problem with that character. I mean, uh like I think like yeah, he's pretty, you know, uh he's got one mode. Um but I I think yeah, obviously you're meant to connect it with like why would he let Landy treat him that way and you're kind of like, "Oh, well, you know, it kind of is, you know, this this complex in his head that comes from his father's abuse." And then also like a little bit like Mike Love too is kind of like another guy who's like pushing him around all the time and, mm-hmm. and and like doubting him. And I guess it's like to really dig into all the complexities of his relationship with his father, like probably needed another half an hour in this movie or something. But, um, but yeah, I think I don't, a, a lot of stuff, not unlike the, um, those sort of like timeline differences and things I think are just made at the, at the expense of, of just trying to tell the, the, the story is, like effectively and simply as possible. And I mm-hmm. feel like the, the dad is a part of that. Too. I think I know the answer for Tommy, but do you think there are too many villains, Dan? Uh, with, with Gene and and Mike Love and the dad? I mean, it's just, it's a tragic story and about someone kind of overcoming a lot. Um, the thing that you're taught in film school is in screenwriting, you need to place as many obstacles as possible in the way of your protagonist because yeah um like (laughs) the idea is that because you know watching someone overcome a lot of stuff is is entertaining and inspiring and uh, you know compelling to Mm -hmm. connect with they have to do that otherwise you know because otherwise like in other cases you think about movies where like there's no conflicts and things just kind of like it's not engaging ted lasso (laughs) how do they do it there's plenty of conflicts in Ted Lasso. There's either few or minor conflicts, and they get away with it, and it's great. That's also why uh, they'll never let Spider-Man marry Mary Jane in the comics. Because it's a big thing he has to overcome. It's it's a it's a uh, because they think no conflict in a comic book won't sell, so they keep the conflict of like will they won't they. So it's not enough that a giant green goblin is trying to kill him. No, never. Okay, that's why he has so many villains. Hmm, this is blowing my mind. I don't, I don't, I don't know how I feel about this as many conflicts as possible thing. Well, Obstacles, not conflicts. Sorry. Yeah. Well, that's stories are conflict. It is. It something has to prevent something from happening for things to happen. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's like you have to have barriers, otherwise there is nothing to like happen. There is no story. There's no action. I, yeah. Yes. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right, Dan. Yeah, you, Dan you are correct. Let's stop the podcast. Um, just as many as possible. I one compelling obstacle isn't enough, and then just really honing in on like the psychology around why that's an obstacle. It's not just like on a macro level. It's it's obstacles are, you know, I don't know. Uh, Every there's an there's there should be a conflict and a resolution in like every scene you know like every like I'm not talking just about like there should be three villains like Spider Man for example in the Spider Man movies they used to like I'm I'm thinking about Tobey Maguire because that's sure. that's my mm-hmm. that's the correct one yeah. <laughs> um they those movies would have like two or three major villains that were all a part of the same thing and I think that's actually personally I just think that's good writing because it gives you a lot of clay to play with mm-hmm. as far as storytelling pun intended Clayface. clay face clay oh shoot that's, wait, that's dc no delete it delete it delete <laughs> um 
Josh there goes works my, for a comic book store. I, think. I love comics. There goes my card. <laughs> um, but like, you know, if it's, I don't know. I just think that it, yeah, it's all about making things complex and difficult. And I think you, you raise the risk, you raise the reward, you create higher stakes. Um, I think in Brian Wilson's case, it's like, not only is he fighting people, he's also fighting some things about himself. He's like, he's fighting the Beatles. Um, yeah. So, I would love to see a fight. Yeah, dude. A like Brian fight. Wilson, like suplexes Paul McCartney. <coughs> Josh, who'd win in a fight, Paul McCartney or Brian Wilson? Spider-Man. So anyway, this is all to tell you that we're working on our new Spider-Man, Brian Wilson, <laughs> and Paul McCartney comic. Um, yeah, I, it's, I don't mean it like literally like, I think you could have too many like literal villains in a movie, but I, I don't know. Comparatively, Mike Love is is more of a a resistant force than he is like you know a primary villain yeah. um, that emphasizes certain aspects of you know the story. I have a note that says Mike Love makes some good points, <laughs> and I feel I felt bad writing it, but I was like, I get he's supposed to kind of be a bad guy stifling the creativity. But like I like I get it. Are like, you gonna mention the cellos? No, <laughs> <laughs> I loved that scene when he was like, so "They've much. been doing it for two hours." <laughs> yeah. Like that like, was yeah, a yeah, good yeah. point. But like I, no, it's not that I agree with him. It's more I get, I get where he's coming from in terms of like the we need a hit thing. Like it's the fucking Beach Boys. But I do love that. Like the scene afterwards is them writing "Good Vibrations," which is like their last big hit for a long time, mm-hmm. if not their last big hit. That um, when when they were figuring it out and Mike was like pointing at Brian like, yeah, 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 you got something. This is something that was, that struck me as like the first time he was ever like affirming anything Brian did or, or said. I think, um, to continue our discussion of, of storytelling, uh, mechanics, I, I think that it's always important that, um, I like the best kind of villains are people that have like, you know, believable cause. And I think he, does it's not always illustrated super clearly because like you know he makes the point like when they're listening to pet sounds he's like i'm trying to make hits you know like i want to like there's not a single there's not a single on this record or you know stuff like that and like you know honestly that's you're right mike love makes some good points like if that was going to destroy their career it didn't and then and i don't think the album was a big success either so like at the time so he was right but we didn't we didn't get like a lot of him. it was just that line of him saying I don't hear a single which is like you know yeah. classic music bad guy mm-hmm. um, and so you know he he does make good points yeah the the cellos thing comes at a time when you know we're supposed to be kind of just seeing how Brian is you know I don't know losing it because of his desire to uh, to create the the, the masterpiece yeah. um, which. Um, I listened to the smile sessions today. I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was working. My, that's my opinion. Um, we're happy for him. Yeah. We're, yeah. You know, I appreciate it. You know, it's like when you, after, after you play a show with a band, you say, when someone asks, how, how are the other bands? You say they were very nice. <laughs> the smile sessions is a very nice album. Yeah. They were cool. <laughs> my, my memory, my memory of the smile session is I remember when, when that came out, I think, I think I was like, I don't remember what year the Smile Session like CD came out. If you can look it up, Dan. But I remember when it came out, I was like at my youth group, and there was a guy there who ran audio that was like, "This is the greatest thing that's like ever been released." And I was like, "What do you what?" He's like, "The Beach Boys, like Smile Session, Brian Wilson's masterpiece." Like was like fully bought into it, 
and um, telling me all about how I need to listen to the Smile Sessions. And I remember going home, listening to it, and as like a, what year did it come out? 2011. 2011. But then there was also a, a one release under Brian Wilson's name that's just called Smile. I think. That's the one I listened to. Um, it's oh, from I, like I li- 2004. But it had like a similar track list. I listened to the Smile Sessions by the Beach Boys from 2011 is yeah. what I listened to. And what the guy was raving about in my youth group mm-hmm. for some reason. And I just, I didn't get it. And I felt dumb for not getting it because this was a guy I thought was very cool and he was like older than me and um, had tattoos. So oh, man. He was cool and I wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. There, Brian Wilson also released uh, an album called Smile in 2004 that is like the same track list. But I'm sure there are different things. And I think there's like really expansive releases of all these things that have mm-hmm. all kinds of like clips and things. Yeah. yeah. No, I know that, like the box set for the Smile Sessions is like very comprehensive, but I only listened to like what was considered the actual album. Mm-hmm. The one I listen, or some of the ones I listened to, were like they had multiple titles, like yeah. one title slash another title slash another title. Like but yeah, but also it, they didn't work together. No, there were some with like <laughs> abrupt changes, different keys, different tempos. They just seemed like it seemed like a journal. And they're like, they finally released Anne Frank's Diary. But it's only certain pages. Yeah. You know? There's a song on the on the Beach Boys version, and I'm it's just titled differently on, on the Brian Wilson version, but on the, the Beach Boys one, it's called The Elements Fire, parentheses, Mrs. O'Leary's Cow. And, I, <laughs> and I, I'm like, dude, what were we doing? The 60s were nuts. <laughs> like, um... Which, uh, you know, that's a Chicago reference, Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Oh, I was going to ask. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the cow who kicked over the... You're a St. Louis person, so I guess. So, so am I. <laughs> right. For those of you who couldn't see me do the over-my-head gesture, I just did the over-my-head gesture. Uh, cow kicked over a, a lamp, well, like the one where you actually use fire, uh, and that started the Chicago fire. But it does seem like... If you're titling a song like that, the elements colon fire, like there was clearly like maybe a day where he was like, uh, we should do the elements water, the elements earth. It's gonna be awesome. He was watching Avatar: The Last Airbender. I was gonna say he was like pre Sufjan Stevens doing all fifty states and giving up after two. <laughs> uh, there's a, a scene that was not funny when I was watching it, but in hindsight, I think is really funny. Is when he's in the studio and he's he's like, we gotta cancel. The vibes are yeah. off. It's it's sad, but like in concept, he's, he he said the vibes are off. The the feeling of too far gone, yeah, kind of came up for me in that moment, and also for Eugene when I think it was the the Arnold Palmer scene. The oh, uh, yeah. but he, it, where, that's when he's like t- saying like you have to not see him anymore. Yes, yeah. and and Melinda brought matzo ball soup like. Yeah absolutely adorable uh and he's like no and then he puts it in the trash i'm like uh there might have been redemption for him somewhere along the way except or like until right now i was like he's he's, the villain is too far gone yeah he's i would argue that maybe he's more one-dimensional not as one-dimensional as the dad but um but but like a great performance from from Jamati. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Everyone is good in this movie. Everyone. Um, I, yeah, I was thinking about, at first it was like, oh, who is better, Paul Dano or John Cusack, which I don't think is fair because they're doing 
two very different things that still work together really effectively, even though they don't look alike. And like, but just this, those two different points in his life, like I buy it. I buy it's the mm-hmm. same guy. And I didn't think I would when I started watching it. But by the end, I was like, the through lines just made sense. I think that was because their performances were just so committed and pitch perfect in their separate regards. I mean, I thought they both did fantastic jobs. I, I read that they um, weren't allowed to talk for throughout the production of the movie. Oh, wow. To just keep them separate. I would have assumed the exact opposite. They were like giving each other notes. I don't know if I support it, but I, it was yeah, just I don't, I don't not really into that. I was like, <laughs> I, I, for me, I do think that they, they come from totally different eras. So like, like the stories and the way that they're shot. And, um, so I feel like the performances are a little disconnected for me. Um, especially, but you know, he's in totally different places in his life. I think the John Cusack one is really understated. Um, in a in a in a really impressive way, and I think the the Paul Dano one is is so much more like it's bigger and it's and it, I mean there's more going on. So like like as far as action goes, um, oh yeah, that but, fight scene was crazy. That part where he he fucked up Paul McCartney. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, I I feel like you should have let those guys like decide on like even like you know like little you know, physical cues or something. I suppose that like what the, uh, what they were going for was like, yeah, they should be pretty separate because they're completely different parts of, um, you know, his life and he's going Mm -hmm. through such different things. And he's like the, the, the pet sounds version of, of Brian is completely different person than, than, uh, John Cusack, Brian. No, I I mean, I just read it as at that point, John Cusack just had the life beat out of him is how I read it and why it was so different. But I assume yeah. they were talking to each other about those sorts of decisions. So that's, that's surprising. Before we take an ad break, uh, we did not talk about the cocktail. Oh, I'll talk about it. So we do a cocktail every episode, as listeners uh, know. So this is not an original cocktail for this episode. It is called the Beach Bum. It is a recipe from a bartender named John Darragon from Please Don't Tell, a bar in New York who named it after Jeff Beachbum Berry, who was famous for inventing and recreating many famous and historic tiki recipes. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Um, Jeff apparently wrote, wrote like tons of books just about tiki cocktails, and I want to get some because it sounds super fun. But the Beachbum, what I used to make it, Probitas White Rum, Havana Club Dark Rum, Apricot Liqueur, Luxardo Maraschino Liqueur instead of Orgeau because I'm allergic to it because I'm a wimp, uh, pineapple juice, which Dan hand juiced himself. <laughs> Dan didn't get pineapple juice, but bought chunks of pineapple and juiced them, which was so impressive and cool. And then lime juice. And it is a tiki drink. It's called the Beach Bum. And that is also a word in the name of the band the main character of this movie is in. And it sounds like this. <laughs> It's a it's a an audio medium. You gotta <laughs> you true. gotta give audio. They, they can't clue, see the cocktails; clues. they have to hear it. You're right. You're right. Yeah. We should do more um, SM, SMR. Is that what it's called? A-S-M-R. ASMR. God damn. ASL. Last time I didn't know what eating eating without YouTube was, and now I don't know what ASMR is. I'm just I'm on the internet. I don't know why I'm just missing things. Uh, it's a very good cocktail. And I like it. I'm glad Josh doesn't like a ton of cocktails. I'm very snooty. Yeah. Slash uncultured. I don't think it's either of those. You like what you like, and I respect it. 
Also, you can see how much I've drank so far is not a lot compared to yours. I, I just drink a lot of cocktails in like a fun, healthy, flirty way. And I'm thirsty. <laughs> Dan's just thirsty. I'm working with a new cocktail now. The cocktail to make gold records. Uh, it's a reference to the movie Love and Mercy, which we are discussing currently. Um, <clears throat> and we're back. From, <laughs> we're back. Uh, thanks to Squarespace. Thank you, Sir, sponsor. Uh, I wanted to mention um, the director. Uh, so really, I was really curious. Cause I was like, who, who did this? And because I think it's an extremely well-directed movie, great performances. I think, yeah, like that, like that opening montage is great. Like the, the scene in the car dealership is incredible. I think, and I, I just think in general, like really, really well-directed movie. Um, so the director is a man named Bill P- Polad. Polad. There's no N? No. I've been saying Poland. Bill Poland? I like that more, frankly. Change it. Um, but he probably shouldn't change it because I, what I learned about Bill Polad is... Bill Polad is the uh, son of Mary Eloise and... Oh, Mary Eloise and billionaire financier Carl Polad, who owned the Minnesota Twins from 1984 until 2009. His brother Jim then took over as owner... And their other brother is the owner of Northmark Capital. So they got some money. And uh, so he directed something in 1990 called Old Explorers, um, which I couldn't find a lot of information about. Um, And then came back into film uh, in 2005, exec producer on Brokeback Mountain. And then produced produced like a bunch of... um, of other like sort of Oscar-y stuff, produced Twelve Years a Slave, so that would mean he has the Best Picture Oscar. Wow. Um, and then this was his first thing that he directed since that movie in 1990, and has since directed only one uh, movie, uh, Dreamin' Wild, which actually I'm really excited to watch because it's. Um, are you familiar? If you're familiar with the um, Donnie and Joe Emerson, the these are brothers that recorded an album in the 70s, and it was like this like long lost gem and. It was like picked up again, but it's a movie about about them, uh, starring Casey Affleck and Zoe Deschanel. Seems like it's gonna have similar vibes to Love and Mercy, so kind of a weird niche little thing. Little guy, yeah, just a little, just a little guy, a niche little guy. I watched a little uh, after special feature, uh, given the privilege of a Blu-ray disc. You should try it. Check it out. But Blu-rays. The- <laughs> You're not gonna be able to buy them soon. <laughs> He looked like a music industry guy. He had like long hair. I don't know how this is relevant, but he, <laughs> it doesn't have to be. He seems like a, a guy who cares about music. And I don't know, you you would just see this guy on stage with Brian Wilson if you saw yeah. him. Well, even just, I mean, this is more common, I guess, about the entire crew and maybe Paul Dano specifically. Like how... Paul as Brian Wilson talks about music like checks out. Like I don't know if that was the screenwriting or Paul doing his homework or what, but when he was in the studio just like giving musicians instructions, I was like, that's a real thing you would say to a musician to like get them mm-hmm. to do like I was really, really impressed with that. I couldn't tell what was him doing his homework or just like a, a well remembered line. Right. Uh but he was actually playing God Only Knows at the beginning. Yes. I noted I clocked he was actually playing piano because I don't think John Cusack was, but Paul oh, no. was. And I thought that was awesome. Mm-hmm. And watching his fingers reminded me of how cool chord inversions are and how I never use them. And I remember 
one of the notes I took was just, oh, where was it? Something about how I just want to use more chord inversions and Paul Dano, play, like watching him play that song, I was like, oh yeah, that's a really easy way to just like add harmonic intrigue to something. And I forgot that like existed because I haven't taken AP music theory in a lot of years. Mm-hmm. I liked how raw that scene was, how raw that performance on piano was. You could see him like trying to figure out the chord for a second. And, yeah. And it was like the audience's entrance into what it's like to write a song what it's like to i mean even just show a person the song for the first time immediately giving like 20 disclaimers about how it isn't done like i feel that yeah yeah but and then getting shut down (laughs) yeah again like i said earlier you know my brother kind of put me on to the beach boys and and specifically you know this album and uh you know like one of the like earliest you know one of the main things i heard about it was paul mccartney said god only knows is one of the best songs ever written and i remember listening to pet sounds you know really early on and being like i don't see what the big deal is and then i tried to learn to play god only knows on guitar and i was like what what are these those those inversions i was like what are these chords i Um, attempted it it's on my instagram if you want to see i used a capo oh yeah, I so saw I listened to Pet Sounds this morning. It is a not it was it's a pretty ugly day outside. Um and I think that it's a perfect album for a little um seasonal depression. Um which is it's nice. Um I personally as much as I respect and appreciate all the musicianship, I actually just really like the lyrics and the songs. I think that it's an incredibly sad album. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like even like the like you know, wouldn't it be nice, which is kind of like, uh, kind of like simple, fun song about like, we should live together. It's so much time. And then I, like, I, I kind of realized at the end, he, he says, I mean, we could talk about it, you know, we should just talk about it. It was not like, there's kind of this unresolved thing at the end. It's, uh, it's, it's a happy sounding song. They all are. They just are <laughs> like, well, the dad literally calls God only knows a suicide note. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Stop being so mean and right. Also, yeah, sad. I like I like sad. I don't know. It's more interesting. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mr. Wilson would have hated all of our friends' bands. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's no wonder that it wasn't a hit at the time. It's not accessible except for the hits. And that's what his dad was mm-hmm. pushing for. That's what Mike was pushing for, his hits and accessibility. But the the if i could pull out one line from this entire movie it's uh brian saying i can't sing about sun and cars and surfing and sun and surfing and cars i think he repeats one of them <laughs> yeah uh i have other stuff in me i gotta get it out well that's one of the crazy things though is like i think god only knows is way more accessible than like singing about i get around and dad took the t-bird away mm-hmm People feel that way. Like, that's amazing. We should talk about that. I don't know. I, lo- I love that song so much. I, yeah. yeah. Um, do you guys want to hear my favorite line from the movie? Absolutely. It is from, I already forgot the name of the guy that's like helping Brian write songs. I think he says it. For I the can't end, picture this guy you're talking about. Guy, I, think there's, I think the guy who helps him write pet sounds. There's Smile, two. I think. Oh. It's, it's later in the movie. Because I think that's Dyke Van Park. I think that's <laughs> Maybe name. that's who it is. The line is, um, he's defending Brian after Mike says the lyrics don't make any sense. 
and he says, the album's a gothic cowboy trip. The lyrics don't matter. I don't think anybody in any movie ever has ever understood my songwriting philosophy more than that man in that moment. <laughs> One more time. It's a gothic cowboy trip. The lyrics don't matter. Gothic cowboy <laughs> and trip. And I said, hell yeah. <laughs> I looked it up. His name is Van Dyke Parks. That's Sorry. That's Sorry, man. Do you have a picture of his character? Um, or is it just going to be another mop top boy? There's a lot of pictures of Parks, unfortunately. Hold on. <laughs> a park named after Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> and then they named a guy after him. <laughs> I mean, My the son. only scene I can think of that he's like even in is, is where he's like sitting on the edge of the pool. And he's and like, that was the scene I think they said that line. Yeah, yeah. So he kind of like, like a darker skin and he had like a... Like a his pants rolled up and then he got up and then yes. uh, his butt was wet. <laughs> That's wet, too wet bad to me. Oh, no. Okay. I just found a meme image. I was like, oh, here's a picture of him as a young person. And it's a picture of, I think, fucking car seat headrests. And it says, <gasps> am I right? That That's the guy. I thought is. <laughs> I can cut this skin description part. Yeah, there he is. See, he's uh, that's the real guy. It's 14. That's what I was saying earlier. Yeah. He said he was writing songs since he was 14. I said he looks And that's 14. him now. Or, no, it's not. No, he's dead. Sorry. Anyway, um <laughs> you guys wish, you should see these pictures. You guys got to see it. <laughs> fucking picture. I I was I listened to a bunch of um I listened to Smile today. I listened to the album that was cuz I I remember listening to their stuff and thinking that even the albums a little bit before Pet Sounds did have some stuff that was a little progressive. Um so I listened to one, uh, the Beach Boys today. Um, isn't it great how sixties albums like they have one called "Hot Summer Days" and then parentheses and nights exclamation <laughs> point. <laughs> um, but yeah, their their stuff was still pretty much uh, kind of I get around type stuff. Uh, and then later on, they I, I listened to one from seventy seven, which I guess is um, actually after the Landy era hmm. um and it's like a bunch of synth instruments um and it, they're like two minute songs that have like these like synth bass lines and 77 or 87 77 wow. um and it sounds wacky uh <laughs> it's like uh it's been described as their synth punk album um it's not Ooh. don't don't oh, let that fool you so excited don't let that fool you because i would like it's it's kind of worth a listen it's called the beach boys love you <laughs> It was, I don't know, I'm sorry, it was annoying. Like, the, the, the annoying parts of the Beach Boys come through a lot post-Pet Sounds. Like, um, the parts that are just like, uh, there's one that I remember from this album from earlier is, it's called Mona. It's like, Mona, come on, girl. Like, you know, and I'm, like I'm, I'm just like, ah, man, I don't, <laughs> sun and cars and girls. <laughs> so I've never tried LSD, and this is one of those times where I don't think I want to. But sometimes I watch these movies about like Brian Wilson or like watch the old Beatles, like Yellow Submarine or uh, Magical Mystery Tour or something. And I'm just like, does it make you better at music? And I don't know. I don't know what I'm asking right now, but I just have a note that says this movie kind of makes me want to try LSD and also makes me never want to try LSD. That's solely based on the scene where Brian just breaks down crying after he talks to his wife about his first experience with it, where he's like, I saw God and then just starts weeping. I saw the future. I'm so so sorry. Yes, terrifying line. I was. I'm wondering if he what he saw. Yeah, 
I go. I. I mean, I'm probably not going to do it. You saw that, the Beach Boys synth punk album. <laughs> <laughs> Roasted. <laughs> Take that, Brian Wilson. You, you fucking hack. You made. <laughs> you been roasted by the D man. <laughs> <laughs> Boing. We need more sound effects cued into this. <laughs> I got you. I'll plug in vegetables here. Vegetables. Vegetables. Can you Some play chomping. it? Chomping. We're listening to the whole song, everybody. <laughs> Tune in. <laughs> Strap in. I'm going to be round my vegetables. I'm going to chop down my vegetables. I love you most of all. All right, for context, we're going to skip to the ha- like halfway through so we get that brushing your teeth like crazy part. So that's what happens when you take LSD. See, I kind of want my own vegetables. <laughs> you could. You could do it. I believe in you. I'm sure I could do it sober. I just, I'm not going to do LSD. But every time I watch one of these movies or even walk hard where they have the LSD trip Brian Wilson scene of him doing like his parody of uh, pet sounds, like I'm just like, ah, it could be cool. You don't want none of this. <laughs> you don't want none of this shit. <laughs> so the king in conclusion, walk the wa- or sorry, walk, walk the walk, walk hard is, is uh, the best movie. Walk Hard is the best movie. I gotta rewatch that. It's so good. I watch that like every couple of months when I'm just like feeling down. I'm like, I need to watch Walk Hard and it immediately makes me feel better. <laughs> but we're not talking about Walk Hard. We're talking about Love and Mercy. That was my transition back into the topic. Speaking of talking about Love and Mercy, um, what did you, we, we, we said the movie movie was beautiful. I noticed a lot more of... Um, like one one takes than than a standard biopic or I mean any movie. It was just like yeah. My favorite was the it's a long take where it's just a three sixty around the studio. That I was can't, cool. I can't remember what they were doing. That's a risky move. A it reminded me of Jean Luc Godard's Weekend. <laughs> I high five Dan because that was a that was a guy who likes movies thing to say. Um. I'm sure it'd been done before that. That's just the other example I think of. But no, that you you've referenced Jean-Luc Godard like in your stage banter. <laughs> My very first show, I remember I I have this song called They Shoot Tigers, and I wrote it after watching Jean-Luc Godard's Made in USA, and I made a reference to it. My very first show. I think that's when we became friends. Yeah. Well, no, we met like in like February. we become, we had been friends before that for a while, but I feel like in that moment I was like that I pointed. Yeah, no. In I, my brain. I, I was like, woo! And then everybody else was like... Everyone was like, we love Jean-Luc Godard, especially a movie of his that nobody has seen. You mentioned a movie uh, at your release show, and my dad was the only one who saw it. Like, Ed Gray. Oh, Ed Wood. Ed Wood. Ed Wood is a great movie. I love Tim Burton. I know nothing about it. I love Ed Wood. You've seen Ed Wood, right? Yeah, I don't remember you mentioning it. I... Um, well, the, you should have been at the release show then. <laughs> I shot a full-length video of it. Then rewatch it. Okay. It, Vampira is a character in Ed Wood. Yeah. yeah. So I talked about Ed Wood because I love that movie. I like I like movies. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm just a wacky guy. I got one bone. I got a big bone to pick with Love and Mercy though, um, because no skeletons. 
Okay. Yeah, there's, it's October. There should be more skeletons in this movie. This is the thing I want. We need we need skeletons in every movie, or I can't stay engaged. Moving on, uh, the th- another dinner scene uh, is like the double date of yeah. of the eighties era. Uh, Brian uh, Brian and Melinda, and then one of Jean's or one of his quote bodyguards and his date. Beautiful use of mirrors. Yeah. Oh yeah. We, I mean, that's an obvious. But it was just like one long take uh, focused on Melinda, and we could see Brian in the in the mirror. I don't always love that technique because mm-hmm. um, sometimes it can feel like really, really obvious. But I think it was really tasteful in that scene because the, the mirror is sort of like, like got a little bit of that like, um, uh, yeah, a little texture to it. And it's, and it's like, it's still kind of small. And like, the thing is that the way that Elizabeth Banks is lit is like, so warm and like gl- like glorious and it, he's kind of like the smaller part and you're kind of i i like it when it can be a little bit like tough to decide what you're looking at um which i i think in a long take in particular like that's that's cool as far as aesthetics go and, and camera stuff i really liked that the 60 scenes were shot with 16 millimeter right it's what it looks like um because it's got and it's got like the little like rack zooms and like yeah, and like film grain and stuff. I I think that look is so cool. I want everybody mm-hmm. to look like that. Yeah, well, they they shot it like there was like someone standing in the studio too, which I thought was a really cool effect. Just like there are a lot of points where like the camera would just be placed in a spot where it's like you're just kind of like in the corner watching it play out as they're mm-hmm. recording stuff. And I thought that was a cool way to kind of immerse you in it. Yeah, cause I, and also something that struck me too, the accuracy to which they recreated like the studio sets. I don't know what the studios actually looked like. But all the instruments were period correct. A lot of the equipment was period correct. Like so much work had to have fucking gone into that. And I thought it was so impressive, like just set design, production design wise, what they were able to pull off with this. Carol Kay's sunglasses. Carol Kay. I almost forgot to mention Carol Kay. I fucking let out a little scream when she showed up. I love <laughs> Carol Kay. The fucking wrecking crew is awesome. I, t- I had to take an audio engineering course in college when I studied music business for a little bit. Um, and we had like a little day about the wrecking crew for some reason. I remember talking about them and I was like, Carol Kay is the coolest person who's ever existed. She's in this movie and it's great. And her sunglasses are amazing. There's a wrecking crew documentary. I watched, uh, probably soon after I saw this for the first time. So that's also deep in my memory. Don't remember much. And, but I do remember that the wrecking crew is so, um, prolific that, the beach pet sounds was only mentioned briefly. Like there's so much more to the Raccoon crew and, and even the, even the scene, um, with the, the drummer talking to Brian outside, I think it was like after the day and he's like, you're touched kid. And like, he was like, we've, we've played with Sinatra, Dean Martin, uh, Phil Spector, um, which Phil Spector comes back in conversation. He's like, Phil Spector's like out to get me or something. When he's, yeah. when he's starting to lose it. He's out to get a lot of people. Okay. I actually have no idea Sorry. who that is. Phil Spector. He's a producer. Also, like, he was convicted, right? I'm pretty <gasps> certain. He what happened? He, yeah, he's he's a murderer. Jeez. Yeah. He produced he, he worked Abbey Road? Let, uh, it Let It Be. Okay. He worked with the Beatles on Let It Be and is the reason there's so many like crazy orchestral arrangements. He was famous for the Wall of Sound, was kind of his governing philosophy, mm. which is stupid. But he also produced George Harrison's All Things Must Pass, which is like in my top probably two albums ever. Mm. Um, 
but like piece of shit. And then there's Ronnie oh, Spector. Oh. Ronnie Spector's cool. I fuck with Ronnie Spector. And that Eddie Money song is like, just like Ronnie said, be my little baby. That's beautiful. Yeah, you're welcome. Usually people pay for that. Can you clip that and then send it to me? <laughs> Why don't we sing more on this show? <laughs> uh, I think the title, Love and Mercy, is perfect. Elaborate. I like this, I like this train of thought. It's, you could even um, pinpoint where the love is in Brian Wilson's life and the mercy that follows. Yeah. He, he, he was in love while, uh, uh, in Paul Dano era um, with Marilyn um, and I mean and then with Melinda coming in and therefore getting the mercy of like you know the justice he deserves and the, and the help he deserves and and then ending the end credits having um, the, him playing Love and Mercy like present day at the time of release it was perfect that was really sweet and that's yeah. been stuck in my head all day Brian and Melinda romance is one, like amazing. I was Perfect. like, I was so wrapped up in it. I was like, wow, feel stuff. I'm feeling stuff. This is great. Perfect romance. Yeah, especially like as weird as John Cusack plays in which you, you'd have to, like, you'd have to. Mm-hmm. I, I bought it. Yeah. And I and like when I was going into this, watching it again, I was like, there's an age gap and he's kind of weird at the beginning and he has that scary note that says like frightened alone. I was like, it's not really the sexiest way to like hit in a girl, but mm-hmm. I bought it fully. But I was like, they are in love, and I love them, mm-hmm. and it was fantastic. This viewing, my most recent viewing, which was yesterday, so it's very fresh. Um, I it, this was the selling point, or this this viewing solidified John Cusack's performance. Before I was wrapped up in like he didn't look like him. Not that I like super care, but like. I want to believe the characters I'm watching with this viewing and with the thought in mind of like taking notes for this. Um, I was like, Ooh, maybe I'll touch on the savior complex that Melinda will have like, Oh, she's just out to like save this guy and Oh cool. He has money. But like, no, it's like pure love. And she, she takes the spotlight. Elizabeth Banks, yeah, absolutely slays, and her sweaters. Uh, I looked it up because I was curious. Cause I didn't know what the actual age gap was in real life. Uh, he's only he was only he is only four years older than her. Hmm. Um, in uh, John Cusack is eight or nine years. I just I literally just looked it up and mm-hmm. already forgot. <laughs> eight, eight or nine years older than Elizabeth Banks. Either way, that's not as bad as I thought. Actually, yeah. uh, she looks really good for her age, and he looks old in this. But that's kind of the yeah. point. So yeah. What else do you like John Cusack in? Um, I think he's a great actor. Um, 2012. Oh no, I forgot about that. <laughs> that movie scared the hell out of me when it was coming out because oh, I was like, yeah. I was like really paranoid about it. Was that like the day after tomorrow? It, it was basically or, the exact same movie, but about the 2012 like prophecy of the world ending. And John oh, the Cusack is the lead. Yeah. Was he good though? You're saying, or you're just talking? Uh, you're just. Good. Yeah, I, I don't remember anything. Oh, about, ha, ha, ha. I don't remember anything about that movie. I remember that Woody Harrelson plays like a crazy dude, and he's like on top of a mountain, and he like screaming, and then, um, um, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> same director as Day After Tomorrow. 
Uh, Roland Emmerich uh, oh. also did in Independence Day. Pretty sure. Pretty sure. Uh, that checks out. I think you're right. Um, uh, actually, I kind of felt like I first recognized John Cusack as a good actor when I saw the movie Chirac. I don't know if you've seen oh, that yeah, one. Yeah, I forgot about that. Um, is that about Chicago? It is. Um, Spike Lee movie. Spike mm. Lee movie. Um, my screenwriting professor in college um, wrote that movie. Um, so we went to go see it and I was like, John Cusack, I don't know about that. And he was really good in it. And I was like, wow, okay. Super underrated. Um, uh, and then, yeah, like all of his, you know, 80s stuff is good. I don't care about high fidelity though. I was going to ask about that. I don't, I don't care for it. I've never seen high fidelity. Um, but the two movies I like him in that my dad really loves both these movies are the sure thing and gross point blank. Are two movies I watched younger than I probably should have and really enjoyed that he's in. Those rent a lot of space in my head in terms of thinking about John Cusack. I don't know what else I've seen him in. Uh, uh, say anything? No. Um, yeah, just list off his movies. I'll yeah, say okay. Yes or Everybody no. this tune is interesting. In. Um, IMDb coming right up. Is he in Being John Malkovich? Oh, duh. Yeah. Okay, I have seen that. I like him in that a lot, actually. I hated the movie. <laughs> I have not watched that in a long time, but I remember that was one of the first, like, thinky movies I ever saw, and I was like, movies can have ideas that are heady and weird. I don't know why that was a revelation to me, but that was one of the first ones where I was like, oh, this is really weird, and I'm into it. I agree. All movies should be like Spy Kids, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Island of Lost Dreams, dude? Yes. Let's go. Um, you know what the best part of Island of Lost Dreams is? Is the skeletons, okay? Um, That's true, when they're climbing up. Yeah. Well, there's I, the part I like... I actually looked this up recently because I was like, wait, that happened in this movie, right? Is the scene where... Um, they like steal something out of like a tomb and then all the skeletons come running after them. And then the, um, the evil spy kids, the like bad spy kids that they're feuding with come out <laughs> and they, um, they get to a fight mm-hmm. and then, um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, not Junie. What's the, what's the girl's name? Alexa is the actress. Y- name. Yeah. So she, uh, says like she gets she like gets the guy with some like hilarious line and all the skeletons are now just watching and they they go woo <laughs> they're like they're like cheering and then like the they they both have like monsters that they ride and they the monsters fight and the skeletons are like cheering and watching and I'm like when I was a kid I was like that's the funniest thing of all time because I was like these skeletons who were previously really pissed off are now like a comedic Carmen Carmen yes. That weirdly doesn't even sound right. Junie and Carmen. I know. I'm I'm reading. I'm reading very well. Someone come on the show and do Spy Kids. Challenge. Yeah. Okay. Um. Anyway, John Cusack movies. Studded. The first one, at least. Uh, John Cusack movies include Stand by Me. I don't know if I've seen. Uh, Paul Giamatti, also the villain in Big Fat Liar. True. That was the first time I saw him. That might be the only other movie I've seen that he's in. Oh, you got to see Sideways. You got to see Sideways. I haven't seen it, but you should see it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> John Cusack. Um, yeah, being John Malkovich. Adaptation. Adaptation. Uh, yeah. Thin Red Line. 2012. 16 Candles. Uh, 1408. Uh, Stephen King adaptations. Terrible. Is that the the hotel one? Yes. Hotel that's Room? The, I think it's Shining. Oh, yeah. Go, go back to the previous episode. Um, episode. Oh, of this. Of this show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Hot move. tub time machine. How can we forget? Oh, anyway, that's the end of this bit. Um, okay. Thanks for joining me on. What is John Cusack in? <laughs> um, keep not knowing where to talk into this microphone. So look at, it's, it's this. This is the. 
Okay, I'm glad that I'm figuring this out as we wrap up the episode <laughs> where to talk into this mic. Um, overall, just thought my take was like, I hadn't seen this movie since it came out. And I remember liking it, but I didn't remember paying much attention to it. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I'm excited to watch it again. But like, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't remember much. It's so good. Mm-hmm. It's a really good movie. Mm-hmm. I was so entertained and engaged and emotional. Um, overall, I thought the John Cusack stuff was a lot more interesting than the Paul Dano stuff. But I, I was like engaged with both of them just for different reasons. And yeah, it made lots of creative choices that I just didn't expect it to get as weird as it did at certain times. Like there's a whole kind of psychedelic sequence toward the end where it like goes into his ear canal and there's like the bed mm-hmm. and it's different time like stuff like that where i was just like i didn't expect it to take any risks being a biopic but it's really a creative movie and i enjoyed it a lot i'm glad i think this should be more widely recognized i just never hear anyone talk about it even when like bohemian rhapsody came out i was like oh i want to watch more biopics and then yeah it's a, a great movie and i had kind of yeah i kind of forgot kind of forgot how much i loved it um all the performances are really good and it then like i really enjoy seeing something that sends me off on a little knowledge adventure Mm -hmm. like this one did and um and yeah and i i think you know we talked a lot about uh the the inconsistencies with with real life or whatever but i think to the point of it being such a emotionally rich film um it's like so cool like the love story is really nice um, I love seeing the creative uh, journey that he that he had and the, like just, you know, the way that this man's life unfolded and all the kind of crazy, uh, weird turns and twists and influences that, that, that come along. And I think it's a really good story. Um, like mm-hmm. I said, I want to see it like a Beach Boy. I want to see like a, give me like a six hour fucking Beach Boys documentary and I will eat that up. Like uh, I'm sure it's out there. Maybe When I got into Star Trek, people there was like. 26 episodes of one hour history of Star Trek. Yeah, great film. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for watching it. Thank you for listening. If you <laughs> did. Um. <laughs> do you want to do say anything that uh, you got going on? If you're listening to this on release day, come to my show at uh, Subterranean tomorrow. Uh, my band Pretty Please is playing with... Uh, Rock Legends, Roswell Kid, uh, they are our biggest influence, and it might sound like we're copying them before them. So you could say, oh, they're doing a bring it on. They're, they're bringing on in their set. They're bringing they just, it. They just copied the same performance before them. Um, check out our new album, Classic Rock. There is physical media available if you want to do that. Thanks. <laughs> Josh, thank you for coming on. This is a wonderful film, and you are a wonderful human being. Thank you. I feel the exact same. I would love to talk more off air. Maybe. Yeah, I'm tired. I I'm really refuse tired. to talk about love, love and Mercy after we stop recording. <laughs> I'll, I'll never, never think, think about, about it. About this again. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night, San Diego. Bye.